Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Listeners will know Gibraltar as the British enclave at the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, but the Straits of the same name encompass much more than just the British rock. Sasha D. Pack, a professor of history at SUNY Buffalo, argues in his recent book, The Deepest Border, the Strait of Gibraltar and the making of the modern Hispano-African borderland, that the Strait, quote, defines one of the modern world's paradigmatic borders. He joins us today to discuss the rise and fall of this borderline paradigm through examining some of the colorful characters and political intrigues that define it. As part of our Historias at BSPHS project, this interview accompanies the review of the book by Benita San Pedro Vizcaya, in the latest issue of the Bulletin for Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies. And is also part of our ongoing series on Spain and Morocco. So Professor Peck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Foster, it's good to be with you. So once again, I think that when most, most people think of Gibraltar, they think of this British enclave, but you view Gibraltar as much more than that. So what constitutes the Gibraltar region for you and what makes it a paradigmatic example of a borderland? Yeah, well, of course, Gibraltar is the British enclave. It refers to the rock that we all know and the isthmus that attaches that to um, the Iberian Peninsula. And that enclave was claimed in 1713 by Great Britain for the purposes essentially of controlling the passage between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. And then and then with the opening of Suez, the Suez Canal in 1869, it becomes a note in this kind of imperial thoroughfare for the British. But the Strait of Gibraltar is not only a passage from east to west or from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, it's also a kind of north-south boundary. And I think intuitively people understand that it demarcates a sort of a series of binaries that are commonplace to us, the Christian world and the Muslim world, for example, imperial Europe, colonial Africa, being another binary that it separates um, Spain and Morocco, of course. At the same time, I don't think it's adequate to only understand it in this way. Uh, The Strait of Gibraltar is an interesting region in its own right, um, that because of this border quality to it, I think possesses its own historical identity or so I argue in my book, it's this kind of remote region that's at the extreme limits of, of two continents. E- even the, the, the regions of just to the north and south of the strait, Andalusia, and not the Atlantic bound part near Sevilla, but the, the, the sort of the land that's relatively depopulated, a home of large estates and landless peasants, um, abundant migrant labor. Um, it's, it's peripheral, it's, it's, it's not... Uh, a, a zone um, that's particularly important to Madrid in terms of its um, terms of its economy or in terms of its um, dynamism. Uh, and then in northern Morocco, we have a similar story with the Rif uh, region and the Tangier region. It's home to an ethnic minority that's never fully assimilated into the kind of Arab identity of the majority of the Moroccan Sultanate. Um, it's kind of peripheral to Morocco as well. And yet, um, it becomes this extremely important geopolitical space um, where a lot of outside powers are exerting influence. Britain, of course, as I just mentioned, but also the French in Algeria, um, and Germany, 
uh, Imperial Germany and Nazi Germany, then Italy, Nasser's Egypt, they all make bids um, as well. Um, so it's a place with an interesting political geography uh, that's characterized by lots of borders that try to delineate the different interests among the different powers that are operating there. I mean, one more thing, I, I guess as a result of all this, I would just say that the Strait of Gibraltar is ultimately a region of, what makes it interesting is a region of very diluted sovereignty. There's no single legal code, there's no single currency, no single military or police force is dominant there. It's a highly pluralist order in a highly constricted space. It's interesting how, as you mentioned, uh, there are so many sort of historical themes that we can see in Gibraltar coming together, uh, this peripheral area for both Spain and Morocco, but one that also becomes a nexus in and of itself. So how did this nexus form? You mentioned in the mid 19th century um, in your book, and you also mentioned already all these different powers that are involved, not only Morocco and Spain, but the imperial powers of uh, Britain and France. So what is kind of their stake each in this region? Well, I guess I start my answer to that question by just looking at the periodization. Um, I go from about 1850 to 1970, which, you know, mark no particular milestones in the history of any of the countries or imperial powers that are involved. Um, my inspiration there, I took from an essay by Charles Mayer, um, the distinguished uh, historian of Germany, uh, who wrote a wonderful essay in the American Historical Review in 1999 on periodizing the modern world. And he essentially argues that if we just kind of adopt always the conventional periodization of the long 19th century and the short 20th century, it inexorably leads us back to the narratives of ideological and political struggles um, that come out of the French Revolution that lead to World War I and then lead to the end of the Cold War and so forth. But it is to miss uh, a series of structural changes that take place sort of in the middle of the 19th century and play out over the course of the next hundred years roughly. There are in in the in the organization of sovereignty in the or in the international order a series of structural changes take place and around the world I mean the unifications of Germany and Japan the American Civil War all, all of these things are kind of symptoms of this change the expansion the territorial expansion of the British and French empires and you see it in this region very clearly you know you see Gibraltar becoming a commercial colony with lots of uh, interaction with its neighbors, um, even though it had been British since 1713, it's around the middle of the 19th century that it really acquires this quality. Um, same with French Algeria, it becomes this magnet for settlers and for mobility for circular migration right, right there around 1850 um, and after. It's a moment of a real clash between British free trade uh, liberalism and, and on the one hand and autarky and mercantilism on the other, which are still practiced by Moroccan and Spanish rulers in order to hold together their coalitions of support. So that's a real clash between the British empire pursuing free trade, protecting its subjects who, who go into Spain and Morocco to trade freely, but resented by um, the rulers of those countries that were sort of that that use the ability to hand out monopolies um, and and raise tariffs as a way to hold their political coalitions together. 
So a lot of things happening. I mean, I could go on the, the, um, war uh, that Spain launches against Morocco in 1859-1860 in a bid for greater influence is, is, is part and parcel of this kind of intensification of imperial rivalry we see starting up around the middle of the 19th century. So, you know, I'm trying to highlight here this border relationship. I think that even in the relationship between Spain and Morocco, if you only think of it as a colonial relationship, I think you miss a lot. We have a lot of excellent scholarship on that, but uh, Spain was not, it was a colonizer, but it was not an independent actor. It was constrained by British British and French predominance Um, in the region. It was constrained by a threat of encirclement. So I think that its relationship with Morocco is more subtle and multivalent than just one of colonizer to colonial subject. It is also a borderland relationship and one needs to look at the longer stretch of time in order to really see that. I was also wondering if you could say a little about the status of Morocco in this period, because that's one that listeners may find confusing. You know, was it a French colony or an, an independent country, a sultanate, or you know, what was its status exactly in this period? It, well, it's very confusing. Um, first of all, Morocco is a um, it's a sprawling kingdom with an itinerant court that doesn't even have a single capital, much like Spain at one time. Um, its court, you know, moves between Fez and Mogador and Marrakesh and some other cities, but it basically it, it's centered on the kind of Atlantic plain of the western part of the country. And as you go inland and as you go north toward the Strait of Gibraltar, you see considerable tribal autonomy. Um, the different um, tribes and in the north there of um, Amazigh or Berber ethnicity, uh, they enjoy quite a bit of autonomy. There's a, quite a bit of ethnic diversity. There's confessional diversity. There's a considerable Jewish population. And the unity of the country is predicated on the idea of the Sultan as the representation of the divine. And so this kind of requires the Sultan to exude hostility towards Spain, uh, which is a religious enemy, even when there's actually considerable exchange and cooperation going on. There is a a dynastic power. The Alawite dynasty takes power in the 1660s, and it's still the ruling house today. Despite the upheaval of colonialism and the world wars and decolonization, it's one of very few modern states, Morocco, whose pre-colonial dynasty remains intact. It's hard to think of another one. Um, And the the Arab Spring recently, uh, they survived that as well, I recall. Survived that as well. And and it was kind of a bulwark of stability during that period. And I think, you know, Spain deserves considerable credit for supporting the dynasty's continuity. Um, As far as its, its independence, it was one of the last African lands to remain independent. It held out until 1912. And it had always been its independence was kind of underwritten by Britain, which didn't want a rival in the Strait of Gibraltar. However, we have the twin crises of 1898. We all know the one in Cuba. And then of course the one in Fashoda, Sudan, that was um, the the, the clash of um, imperial spheres uh, between Britain and France. And there was this concern that a conflict between Britain and France actually might happen in Spanish space um, and so there were all these unknowns in 1898. Would, um, you know, Britain and America chase Spain, uh, you know, out across the Atlantic back to Spain? Would the French 
aid the Spanish and attack Gibraltar from Ceuta. All these things were, you know, live possibilities, uh, and they were being they were contingencies that all sides were planning on. Um, these are the kinds of problems that are that Europeans kind of learned to solve by just exchanging colonial territories. So that was the end of independent Morocco. Britain realized they just withdrew their patronage of Morocco and suddenly it became so easy to resolve all these disputes. Well, give France to Morocco. I mean, sorry, give Morocco to France, but to avoid the problem of, of, the, um, uh, of the Strait of Gibraltar, make a kind of sub-colony sub or sub-protectorate um, with under Spanish influence in the Northern Sliver, which is really only about 1 20th of Moroccan territory. So, but as a kind of a buffer zone. And so that's how it gets created. So the Spanish protectorate is not really a Spanish protectorate at all. It's kind of a, a Spanish sphere of influence of the French protectorate, um, which creates all kinds of confusion. They went during World War I, uh, is Spain supposed to be neutral or is it's, or is it's Moroccan, um, portion supposed to be pro-entente as France is. All of these things created lots of ambiguities, which kind of tore the region apart in that period. So in your book, there are so many different examples that we can talk about from Gibraltar itself to the uh, adjacent Spanish region, the Campo de Gibraltar. Then we have the Spanish enclaves in Africa, of Ceuta and Melilla, cities in Morocco, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted to focus on one that I thought was particularly fascinating, and um, that is the city of Tangier, uh, which is, has kind of a unique reputation as an international city. And um, so I thought that it really kind of captured this borderland nature of the re region that you're speaking about. So how did Tangier in particular uh, develop this international status? Tangier is an ancient settlement that dates, you know, to, to Roman times um, or actually earlier. Um, but it really becomes a, a it really comes into its own in the 19th century because the sultan designates it as, as a di diplomatic capital. It's where European consuls can lodge because it's far away from the court. Um, it's at arm's length. Um, so the European consuls have a difficult time getting access. It, it's a way to sort of keep them at bay. But over the course of the 19th century, the consuls actually do manage to um, amass a certain amount of influence, not least because they're plugged into the um, Mediterranean diplomatic networks, consular networks, and they get good information about the spread of contagion, particularly cholera. And so, so it is the European consuls who know when it's safe to set sail, um, particularly for the Hajj pilgrims, Muslim pilgrims heading to Mecca, to um, when it's safe for them to undertake that pilgrimage. Uh, so eventually the Sultan um, Abdul Rahman in 1840 uh, designates uh, a Tangier hygiene commission, which controls quarantine, um, and lifts quarantine for all Moroccan ports. And so uh, this is, you know, the first way that the Europeans really gain considerable influence. Um, at one point, they have to turn away a, a ship with a thousand 
that has you know lost a thousand passengers to cholera of its original 1800 pilgrims and they have to turn them away and this is you know quite a big scandal the 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 moroccans are not happy about the moroccan population is you know is is horrified to see the europeans just say no you can't dock here mm -hmm. uh, when they're trying to return from a hajj pilgrimage um and so at that point the sultan was at that point muhammad the fourth disbanded the commission but um, but the European prestige was by then well entrenched um, during a, a later famine of 1877-78, a huge influx of, of, of migrants come to Tangier because there is a lot of foreign capital flooding in at that point, and they are able to organize relief efforts more effectively than other cities. So that um, brings a big population jump. And then um, you know, by 1900, you have the city's European elite seeking to build a modern city of the Mediterranean sunbelt, right? Touristic, cosmopolitan, also industrial. And then finally, um, it becomes a, a formal international colony in 1923, um, which is governed by a kind of a council of European diplomats. It retains this status until 1960, except for a brief interlude during the Second World War when the Spanish control it directly between 1940 and 1945. I think that it's interesting because when we think of this nexus of Gibraltar, um, it seems like it's really tied together by the trade, mostly illicit, <laughs> which we can talk more about in the second half. But um, that in Tangier, you also have it as kind of a center for tourism uh, long before the sunny beaches of Spain that, that people flock to uh, up until today, really. So could you tell us a little bit more about that, about what it was like to be a European tourist um, visiting Tangier in this period and, and what really dropped, drew people to the area? Well, look, for a European tourist, Tangier was you know, the Orient domesticated. You could, you could stay in a European hotel that received made all the major European newspapers um, that had nice piano parlors and enjoy a pleasant ocean breeze. Um, maybe if you were, if you had the right connections, you could go shooting um, at the Tangier hunt. There were a lot of, um, a couple thousand predominantly British winter residents, you know, what we call snowbirds today, uh, people who, you know, who would spend winters down there. There was an Anglican church um, that was kind of the center of that community, uh, a certain rough opulence, um, you know, uh, that there was a kind of high society, but at the same time, which, which included a lot of these tourists, people that weren't necessarily counted as tourists because they were winter residents, but essentially that's what they were. And they would attend all kinds of functions. Um, and often the streets were muddy and unpaved at that point, um, but, uh, but they would still manage to arrive at their uh, balls and so forth with, with their hair intact and, and, um, and their outfits and everything. Um, all of this against a backdrop of, of minarets and Muslims calls and Moroccan life, um, which you know struck uh, struck Europeans as as very different from what they were used to, so they could have this kind of comfort uh, at the same time as this you know exotic backdrop. If you visited, um, your guide or driver would likely be a Spaniard. Unlike the other European populations of Tangiers, uh, the Spanish population was mainly mainly working class in origin, drawn from Andalusia and the you know migrant 
laborers that would, you know, come down for seasons or come down permanently. They would hunt, they would hunt, uh, you know, boar and, and bird to fowl, you know, to, to provide to the um, hotels to feed, to feed to their clients. Um, they would serve as guides. Uh, they tended to live among the Muslim and Jewish populations of the city uh, in those neighborhoods. So they found roles as mediators between them and colonial travelers, uh, not just for tourists, but also for, um, you know, the kind of rotating cadre of consuls and merchants who would come through the city. And the Spaniards typically worked as their gardeners and cooks and domestic laborers and shoppers and so forth. Um, they also ran the underworld, the Spaniards. So if you were visiting Tangier and you wanted to access the gambling or the sex trade, that, that was uh, tended to be run by Spaniards, often exiles from the 1868 to 1874 revolution who settled in Tangier and set, set up those industries. Um, I think it's also important to point out that Europeans weren't the only tourists. Uh, Moroccans also traveled to Tangier, you know, and, and, and they, you could call them tourists, you can call them merchants who wanted to stop uh, and make kinship visits and pay respect to a shrine. Often the Hajj pilgrimage uh, came in and out of Tangier as well, as I mentioned. So overall, there were high hopes for tourism in 1900. They were never really fully realized. During the Depression in the 1930s, the Municipal Council, which was composed of the European diplomats, attempted to legalize and tax the gambling industry, hoping to, you know, help the city out of its um, budget problems. But the Spanish consuls vetoed every attempt because they were under pressure from all those, um, all those gambling rings who were often tied to Republican, like working class Republican politics as well. And so, you know, that's another reason why tourism really never takes off there the way that um, the visionaries had, had once hoped. We're going to take a short pause now, and then um, we're going to take a look at one of the most interesting ideas I found in your book, The Slipstream Potentate, and we'll explain what that is. So welcome back. As I mentioned, one of the most fascinating ideas um, in your book, I thought, was this idea of slipstream potentates. So what did you mean when you used that term? Well, a strip, a slipstream is the space behind a large moving object. You can picture like a truck rolling down the highway, and right behind the that um, truck is this frictionless void in which air or objects can be propelled forward with little resistance. If you, you know, cyclists will know what I'm talking about here. I thought the slipstream was a good metaphor for a certain type of charismatic figure um, <clears throat> that one finds in uh, both Spain and Morocco, other places as well, who figures out how to amass power by moving in and out of the slipstreams created by the various imperial powers that are jockeying in the region. So it's kind of a version, we talk about, uh, anthropologists will talk about political entrepreneurship that prevails in Morocco in this period by which these charismatic figures, often they're born um, into 
well, they're, they're, they're of noble birth. They can claim a lineage dating back to Muhammad often. That's what designates a, a Sharif. They would build wealth, typically from brigandage. Um, they would build followings. They would build large entourages. And they would use this as leverage to gain a position in the sultan's administration, which they, they would then use um, you know, as the sort of political arm to advance their own personal interests or the interests of their clan. Um, and in, in southern Spain, you know, you have this too, especially in that depopulated corridor that extends north from Gibraltar, where there's a lot of smuggling, um, particularly tobacco smuggling, and, and that's tied with, well, it's a tried and, trust and tested route to becoming a mayor or like a local cacique in, in the late 19th century. So you have this political entrepreneurship. But then as you have more outside powers entering the fray, the menu of options for these people expanded because they could now not only just gain office from the sultan or, you know, gain a, um, uh, you know, um, a position with one of the local, you know, one of the political parties in, in a local context in Spain, but they could actually also purchase protection of a colonial power. And then when the relationship with one ceased to be useful, they could just shift their loyalty to a rival empire. And they often did this with great skill. Um, and I think they need to be um, thought of as kind of part of the regional order alongside states and empires, because they could exert, they could exert a lot of independent power. Yeah, and, and precisely for that reason that there were all these empires uh, jostling for power all around them. So I wanted to focus on three of these slipstream potentates that you discuss in your book. And the first, El Raisune, is sometimes categorized as nothing more than abandoned, uh, whereas otherwise he's glorified as a clever Robin Hood. There was even a movie made about him in 1975, pairing him with Theodore Roosevelt, The Wind and the Lion, where he's played by none other than Sean Connery. So who was Raisune and what did he accomplish in this space? Yeah, well, Raisune was born in 1871 in a small village near Tetuan, so in the very northern part of Morocco near the Strait of Gibraltar. He was of, of noble birth and, and ordinarily would have gone on to study law and theology and take a position perhaps in the, in the uh, administration or perhaps um, at, uh, as a... As a um, a Muslim jurist, something like that would have been a typical path forward for him. But instead, he abandoned all that. He took to the road. And by the time he was 20, he controlled, he essentially controlled the route between Tangier and Tetuan. He controlled all the trade. Um, he taxed it as he wished and raised a militia. He was captured at one point, did a four-year stint in a dungeon in Tetuan, but he escaped and he grew rich, through a, a variety of means, um, but he, he soon learned um, by around 1900 that a very lucrative uh, vocation would be kidnapping European subjects so, and, and negotiating their ransom. And so in 1904, he actually, and this is the tie-in with, with President Theodore Roosevelt, he kidnaps uh, a Greek-American playboy, a guy named Pedicaris, who actually doesn't Apparently, in the end, he doesn't have American citizenship, but he's a supporter of, and a patron of Roosevelt's. Uh, and so Roosevelt, during the presidential campaign of, two, of 1904, demands that the Sultan 
um, you know, get Pedicaris released. And Sultan is only able to do that by offering um, Raisuni the, um, the position of Kaid of Tangier, um, which is supposedly a, a kind of just the representative of the Sultan in the city, but he takes a different approach to it and essentially um, turns Tangier into his kind of personal um, domain and rules it with, with an arbitrary, uh, in an arbitrary way. Uh, and eventually the Europeans chase him out of Tangier. Um, but then over the next couple of decades, you know, he, he survives the French, the Germans, the Spanish all vie to be his patron. And in return, he's able to provide intelligence, um, reconnaissance. Um, he's able to secure overland routes. He mobilized his men, thousands of his men, alongside German and Turkish soldiers in northern Morocco in World War I in an attempt to, to capture Tangier. He emerged from World War I with German weapons. Uh, even after the Germans were defeated, he had German weapons, uh, even apparently even gas, poison gas canisters. But he lost German protection, which was actually more important. Uh, to him. Uh, and it was really at that point, the Spanish were able to ultimately chase him into the interior, whereas he, he ends his days, he's captured by another uh, rival, the, uh, the upstart Abdel Krim, uh, and dies in captivity at the age of 51 or 52. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty amazing story. And you can definitely see how he he fit right in there in, in that uh, space that opened up, like you said, and made quite a quite an amazing career out of it um but i think the other thing that's surprising is that you can you pair raisuni with juan march who many people might know was long the richest man in spain so you know what does juan march have to do with this gibraltar region and how can we also consider him to be a slipstream potentate yeah well it's a provocative pairing to be sure um, to put Raisuni and, and Juan Marc side by side. You know, there were some differences. Of course, you know, um, Juan Marc was not of noble birth. He was born into a mi minor commercial family in Mallorca, but he also craved something other than just kind of doing what his family, what his family inheritance might have led him to. So um, he started tobacco cultivation and smuggling because um, tobacco was a monopoly in Spain. Um, so it was overpriced and most people bought their tobacco smuggled in through Gibraltar um, much more inexpensively and of higher quality. Uh, and so he wanted to get in in this business. He started growing tobacco in French Algeria and then he would carry it into Spain and then later Spanish Morocco on ships, vessels that were registered in Gibraltar. So as a result, he, you know, he was kind of hiding behind these borders um, so that the Spanish tobacco patrol could not really get him. And over time, he built up a massive fleet. It was said that he had about 40,000 people on his payroll, uh, often, you know, police and tobacco patrol officers and, and people like that, uh, along with all kinds of other people. Um, he was actually able in the, he was operating all around that sort of coast of the, off the Strait of Gibraltar, the far Western Mediterranean. He even sold fuel to German U-boats in, uh, in, in the First World War. And he also sold uh, intelligence because he had all these informants everywhere to the British during that war. Um, and so, you know, he does uh, build up a, a certain amount of in, independent power and the British uh, are certainly willing to sponsor him uh, in his 
in his business, which is illegal as far as the Spanish are concerned, um, because of what they're able to provide, what he's able to provide them in terms of, of intelligence and other resources during the war. Eventually, you know, um, he becomes a fugitive of the Spanish Republic and he's put in prison, but escapes indeed in a Rolls Royce um, to Gibraltar. Uh, and he winds up, uh, the Republic is going to persecute him. Well, I'll show you, he says. He bankrolls Frank Franco's rebellion in 1936. And then he's also used, he's ultimately, he's kind of an Anglophile and he winds up channeling bribes to Franco's generals who are uh, more of the Anglophile persuasion in order to keep Franco neutral in the Second World War. Um, so, you know, why do I pair him with Raisuni? Well, for all their differences, of course, Juan March dies, the richest man in Spain. Raisuni dies kind of in, a, in an inglorious captivity. But, you know, it could have worked out in reverse, too. They're both ruthless gangsters with a knack for populist politics. They're both charismatic leaders of a, of a group that is kind of part political formation and part pure banditry. They're alternatively courted and persecuted by different sovereign leaders, um, different governments. And they both, in the end, they know how to take advantage of these imperial slipstreams to amass power and to re maintain relationships with agents of multiple rival powers. So in that mm -hmm. sense, they were actually quite similar. And they're both, I would say, in, in some sense, products of this very peculiar region that is the Strait of Gibraltar region. Now, finally, you mentioned Abdel Krim, who is kind of the up and coming rival um, to Raisuni. Uh, but he's a little different in that he led a rebellion in 1921 against the Spanish in Morocco. So he's usually contrasted with Raisuni, who's, you know, presented as more of a, a, of a freedom fighter, whereas Raisuni is more of a bandit. But you also argue that El Krim, we consider him to be a slipstream potentate. Um, so how do you see him in this category? Well, that's right. I mean, he's usually treated as part of a so like the vanguard wave of anti-colonial nationalism um, coming out of the First World War, of the kind of Islamic modernization movement, you know, along with, I think it's Azerbaijan, um, you know, the Reef Republic that he establishes is like the first um, Islamic Republic, right? Um, sometimes he's compared with Ataturk as well. And all that's fair enough, but I also think that he's very much a product of this world of diluted sovereignty. Um, and he can also be thought of in that way. After all, he grew up under Spanish protection. Um, his father was a colonial administrator uh, who worked closely with the Spanish. His brother, um, you know, was won an, an engineering scholarship to study in Spain. Um, Abdel Krim himself worked for the Germans during World War I, um, but this was normal because there was so much um, Germanophilia in the Spanish colonial army in, in Morocco um, that, was, that it was perfectly natural for Abdel Krim to work with the Germans while working with the Spanish. And this did introduce him. Of course, the Germans were really pushing the idea of anti-colonial nationalism anywhere where there was a British or French colony during the First World War, right? And so mm -hmm. they uh, pushed this idea. This is apparently where he was first introduced to the idea uh, of, 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 of kind of modern anti-colonial nationalism. And that 
ideology did ultimately lead Abdel Krim to confront Spain uh, in the 1920s. But in the short term, I think the more important consequence of this Spanish-German collaboration in Morocco was actually to drive a wedge between France and Spain. The French were obsessed with this. The French protectorate generated, the administration generated hundreds of documents, probably more, of intelligence showing uh, how Spanish office, officers were in concert with the Germans, violating Ger Spanish neutrality, especially in Melilla. And Abdel Krim was, was, was one of many um, uh, Moroccans who was participating in that. After the First World War at, at Versailles, at the post-war peace conference, um, the French actually, you know, citing all of this collaboration between Spain and Germany during the war, the, the French hatched a plot to try to re renegotiate uh, the Moroccan accords and essentially expel Spain from Morocco altogether, you, you know, and sort of work out some sort of deal with the British where they could both, you know, occupy the, the Strait of Gibraltar. Uh, so, but that would mean pushing the Spanish out. So the Spanish, uh, the Prime Minister Romanones, was kind of feeling the heat um, and ordered a more thoroughgoing occupation of the interior. Uh, and he met considerable success with this by the end of 1920. You know, he was he was finally occupying this this area that had been designated to the Spanish um, with actual boots on the ground. And Abdel Krim was kind of hoping to seek terms with Spain to become a kind of frontier client, like protect all the iron mines that were there and just exact a fee from the Spanish or from whoever for their exploitation. He was kind of jockeying for that kind of thing. Um, but when the Spanish refused to do that, um, he started federating the tribes uh, to create this rebellion. And he tries indeed to gain the patronage of the French um, who are happy to do anything that would be vindictive toward toward the Spanish uh, colonial army. The French, you know, are not willing quite to go there. But Abdel Krim has agents operating in Gibraltar and in Tangier that are getting him supplies. Um, the French kind of look the other way as they bring in um, supply lines to, to fuel the rebellion through the French zone. Um, the French, you know, essentially know what's going on. And they only try to do something about it when they start to perceive in late 1923, that the French uh, zone is also perhaps under threat. And it's only at that point that um, that France and Spain are kind of um, able to kind of um, jointly cooperate. And that's that's what happens with the slipstream potentates. In, in, in the end, they're able to thrive in an atmosphere of mistrust among the powers. But once the powers kind of get together to jointly um, chase them out, they, they usually succeed. And that's the case here. Once France and Spain join forces, then it's just a matter of time before Abdel Krim um, is defeated, mm -hmm. uh, which happens in, in 1926. Right, right. That, um, that makes a lot of sense. And that brings me to my last couple of questions, because you argue that eventually these dynamics of the Gibraltar borderland ended and um, or at least they changed form uh, and and you don't see these uh, same kind of potentates and so forth um, so when did this happen and why world war ii was the global revolution 
right? Um, but it's of, of the contemporary world, right? But its effects were not felt evenly or all at once. Um, and so because it was the Western powers that controlled the Strait of Gibraltar before the war, there were some revisions during the war, um, but when the allies won, it sort of reverted back to the status quo ante, but not for long. You know, over time, the Strait of Gibraltar sort of grows less important um, in terms of ge global geopolitics. Um, Morocco is decolonized uh, under American patronage. So all those inter-imperial rivalries are gone. And even that kind of old colonial cosmopolitan atmosphere I was describing, by 1960, you know, that even ends. So we have a, a, a place in which people's social lives brought them into contact with, with people from all kinds of other ethnic and legal communities. Well, there's a kind of second uh, sorting of the population. Well, I mean, the first one being in the, in the 16th century when, um, when the Jews and, and uh, Muslims were expelled from Spain and you have this kind of um, ethnic religious, re, you know, sorting going on. Mm -hmm. It, it happens again, I think, in this period, 1950s, 1960s, when um, the, the Jews depart uh, from Morocco, the Europeans depart from Morocco. And I think, you know, World War II is definitely at the origin of this. During the war, Franco had attempted to work with Hitler to reorder the whole region on kind of terms that would be mutually advantageous. But Hitler, it was hard for him. He had to balance all these demands of Italy and France as well. So he wasn't really able to reward Franco with everything that Franco wanted. Franco did occupy Tangier between 1940 and 1945. But of course, uh, at the end of the war, he couldn't sustain that. During that occupation, interestingly, the Spanish colonial army staged a lot of anti-Semitism um, in order to show solidarity with the Germans who enjoyed quite a lot of prestige in Morocco to draw a sharp contrast with the British who often worked closely with Jewish groups and were long believed to favor their interests. Franco abandoned this by 1942. Much of his army um, you know, stopped trusting the Germans uh, and they were quite philo-Semitic. Um, you know, I found a report, I think from 1941, telling, well, a, a communication to Spanish officers telling them that if they're going to attend a bar mitzvah or a Jewish wedding in Tangier, to please be discreet about it so that the local Muslim population wouldn't see that the Spaniards, you know, are on closer terms with the Jews than they might think. Anyway, it's been um, all to say that uh, it's been claimed uh, sometimes that Arab nationalisms acquired a sort of anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist views because of um, Nazi activity in the Arab world. I would say that, in, at least in Morocco, this was actually present long before Germany. The Germans appeared on the scene. Even in 1860, the Spanish kind of used the same trick of, of, of like sort of um, humiliating Jews in public uh, so that... Um, you know, so that the gaze of the Muslim population would see Spain as as a sort of um, uh, as a pro-Muslim force that, you know, that dated back at least to 1860. Uh, but it was only sporadic in general. There was much more conviviality among the three different religious groups. But yet after, you know, with the rise of modern Moroccan nationalism, the Jews do start to get nervous 
Um, and there's a kind of a mass exodus to Israel after decolonization, um, and there, uh, which is incidentally is aided by the Israeli Secret Service Mossad uh, with Franco's cooperation because they set up their base in the Bay of Gibraltar there in a, in a kind of a bog that is uh, a part of Spanish territory, um, but they're essentially helping Moroccan Jews get out because they're actually not allowed to leave uh, or they're not allowed to go to Israel because uh, Morocco doesn't have ties with Israel at that time. So, you know, um, there is a kind of nervousness the Jews leave and the Spanish also withdraw in stages, which leave the Rifi minority in the North very vulnerable to the Moroccan nationalists who are sort of rather Jacobin in their approach to Moroccan nationalism. They, they have very Arab and urban social base and they don't like the tribal autonomy that the Rifians have often enjoyed. So you have a Rifian revolt in 1958 uh, and the Riffians plead to Franco for assistance, for support, actually. And Franco hears their plea with a song froid and refuses to support them, uh, says he's going to support the, the Sultan and the Moroccan nationalists. Uh, and the Sultan actually carries out a, you know, a brutal repression, kills about 8,000 Riffians, including women and children, but Franco refuses to intervene because he really is adamant about supporting the continuity of this dynasty, um, which he fears could fall to um, a Bathist coup or a Nasserite coup or something like that. Um, but it doesn't and it winds up surviving. And so, you know, and even the British, you know, Gibraltar, as the, the rock of Gibraltar loses its strategic significance as well. You have the U.S. Mediterranean fleet at Rota now. Um, so Gibraltar finds a new economy from offshore finance and banking and stuff like that. So, you know, the whole order that I'm, you know, discussing that develops between, say, the mid-19th and mid-20th century sort of fades away and, and it's something different now. Migration, immigration now, as we know, moves northward rather than southward. And that's another key difference that one sees, you know, emerging after the, you know, the first few decades after World War II. That brings me to my last question, because I think that when we think about this uh, Gibraltar region, and, and as you mentioned, it comes up in the news a fair amount, we often tend to have this perspective on it from today, and this kind of lens of a clash of civilization, um, north and south. But you argue that your study of the region allows, it, allows us to see it in a different way. So how does it do that? Well, sure. I mean, that's, a, of course, a reference to Samuel Huntington's, I think, unjustly maligned book envisioning a post-Cold War, post War order in which, you know, civilizations form the fault lines of global conflict. You got to remember that, you know, for Huntington, this was just it was not prescriptive. It was just a description of what he was observing happening around him in the 1990s at a time when most of the flashpoints of violence around the world seemed to lay at the frontiers of the Muslim world. Like you think of Chechnya and Palestine and Kashmir and Bosnia and these, you know, these conflicts that he would have been observing at the time. But Spain and Morocco, that border was not on the list. So, you know, I wasn't out to prove Huntington wrong about all this, but just to, but I was just skeptical that his model, which placed so much emph emphasis on re religious identity uh, as the driver of, of conflict, 
you know, I was just skeptical that this was the only way to look at it. And I wondered if, if this sort of reduced this borderland, which I hope I've described here is such a rich, is a place with such a rich history and just kind of reducing it to this kind of like Moros y Cristianos binary was going to obscure that history. So I wanted to, to try to recover that. And of course, it's true that the strait does form a, a kind of a civilizational frontier, but that's not the only feature of it. Um, all kinds of other relationships have accrued. Um, Spain and Morocco are nations. They both um, operate in the system of international diplomacy. And so um, I think that there has been, I would regard the the kind of maintenance of this borderland um, as relatively peaceful place as a kind of a success story that I wanted to understand. You know, it took tremendous effort despite imperialism, despite the intense geopolitical rivalry around the strait, um, its evident potential as a, as a flashpoint for conflict, um, which it almost became in 1898. It almost became in the late 1930s, um, maybe 1940, but never, and maybe at another, a couple other points in its history, but it never does. Uh, of course, there's, you know, there's violence, but the wars tend to remain short and limited. There's brigandage and civil contract, uh, civil conflict, but these are also tempered. I think it's generally successful. I mean, the one exception would be the Rif War of 1921 to 1926, I just referred to, which indirectly leads to the Spanish Civil War. So that would be, you know, the, the one disruption um, in an otherwise relatively peaceful period. I, the Moroccan monarchy survived de de decolonization. It didn't fall to a, a Soviet coup or a Ba'athist coup or an Islamist coup, uh, as happened in so many other places. And as uh, we were discussing before, that it also helped Morocco get through the Arab Spring of nineteen of, of 2011, without without too much upheaval mm -hmm. um, as a kind of ironically the, the Moroccan monarchy is probably closer to Franco's vision for Spain's future after his death than the constitutional monarchy that wind up being established after his death in Spain. Um, it's this kind of uh, semi-authoritarian uh, monarchy that's also dynastic like he had imagined uh, Juan Carlos would be taking over and Franco did quite a bit there are, of course, conflicts between Spain and Morocco in this period, but Franco, I argue in my later chapters, did quite a bit to stabilize that monarchy in this kind of semi-authoritarian form, and that actually endures to this day. That's one of Franco's, I think, real, uh, real legacies. Well, I want to thank you so much, uh, Sasha, for coming on the program. This has been a fascinating story of a region that I think we understand in a lot more depth now. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Foster. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.